0: Listener discretion is advised. In 2004, Keisha Wizard had been a contestant on the kids' TV show, Stars in Their Eyes. The confident, bubbly 14-year-old bounded onto the stage. Her mum, dad and little brother cheered from the audience. The performance charmed the nation and, for the years following, Keisha was famous amongst her family and friends. But by her 18th birthday, someone would change the lives of Keisha and her family, forever. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 4, Beverly, Keisha and Fred. Keisha Wizard was born to Beverly and Fred in 1990, in Manchester. Manchester is sometimes called the second city. It's known for its beautiful buildings, Trafford shopping centre and thriving music scene. Beverly worked as a nurse at Manchester Royal Infirmary. She loved helping people and the family home was one of kindness and understanding. Keisha spent the first few years of her life as an only child. Her friends at playgroup had little brothers and little sisters and by the time she was three, she was desperate for a little brother or sister of her own. Beverly and Fred decided to have another child and by the time Keisha was five, she welcomed home her little brother, Fred Jr. The family decided to move to the Fallowfield area of Manchester so that they could get a slightly bigger house now that there were four of them. Fred Jr. and Keisha loved the new house and were incredibly close growing up. The pair got on well and Keisha felt protective over her younger brother. Beverly and Fred Sr. eventually drifted apart and decided to separate, although they stayed on good terms for the children and Keisha went to live with her dad whilst Fred stayed with their mum. When Fred Jr. reached 11 years old, he began to attend St. John Viennese Lower School, where he was initially quite shy and quiet, but quickly made close friends and flourished into a talented and intelligent young man. Around this time, his sister had decided on a bit of a whim to pull up an application form on the internet for stars in their eyes. It was a talent contest where hopeful singers take on the challenge of transforming themselves into well-known celebrity singers and performing a song on TV in front of thousands of viewers. Keisha filled out the form and sent it off, not really thinking anything would come of it. But when her mum received a phone call a few weeks later saying that she had been accepted, she wasn't nervous but was extremely excited. She loved singing and she knew exactly who she was going to be. The Stars in Their Eyes episode that Keisha appears on is a beautiful example of Keisha's talent and confidence as an aspiring singer. She chats to the host Kat Dealey with ease and maturity throughout the episode. The show is set up to show the contestants normal home life and flits between this and the live show. In the home life sections, we see a 14-year-old Keisha walking through her school, talking to the camera. She takes them to the school gym and we see her play netball with her friends. It then cuts to Keisha sitting at home with her friend Danica. They walk down the stairs and find Keisha's mum, Beverly, dancing on the dance mat. The bond between mother and daughter here is heartwarming. They're having fun playing up for the camera, and it's clear that the laughter is genuine. Beverly beams proudly when the audience camera pans to her, but it's as though she doesn't even notice the camera. Her focus is on her daughter up on stage. Keisha exudes kindness and an infectious, bubbly energy and goes on to sing Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart. Keisha also had a CD produced of her music after she beat hundreds of music hopefuls to win a competition by local radio station Carnival FM in Manchester. In the years following Keisha's stint on TV, she studied hard for her GCSEs and then A-levels. She was incredibly smart and had a bright future ahead of her. Although Keisha continued to sing, she had turned her focus towards her studies and decided that she wanted to help people by becoming a lawyer. She had applied to the University of Manchester to study law. She worked hard for her A-levels in English language, law and philosophy and eagerly awaited her results. She posted on her Facebook page, quote, Hey, my exams went well, I think. Some were better than others. I'm just glad they're over now. I've been doing some serious partying since I finished last week, so everything is brill at the mo unquote. Just days after her last exam, Keisha decided to celebrate by taking a day trip to London with her friend. Her dad dropped Keisha and her friend off at Manchester Piccadilly train station that morning, said goodbye and told her he'd see her later on. Just an hour or so later, Keisha called her dad to tell him that she bought him some special gummy bear sweets because she knew he was trying to stop smoking and had read somewhere that chewing these sweets could help. Keisha beamed that she bought him five packets. By the time early evening came around, Fred Sr. heard from Keisha that she wouldn't be back until late so she'd just stay at her mum's as it was closer to the station. She said she'd see him the next day. However, a few hours later, he realised he hadn't received his usual phone call from Fred Jr. after he finished school. He got no response when he called and when he tried Keisha, the phone went straight to voicemail. He assumed her phone had run out of battery and perhaps Fred had forgotten to call. He wasn't worried because he knew he'd be seeing Keisha the next day, and Fred would call after school as usual. But as 3pm came and went the next day, he didn't get a call from Fred, and Keisha hadn't returned home. He tried calling Beverly, but again, got no answer. Fred Sr. began to get worried. He made his way to Fallowfield on the other side of Manchester, where Beverly lived. When he got there, his heart sank. He saw police and paramedics outside of the house that was cordoned off. He ran up to a police officer who had to inform him that Beverly, Keisha, and Fred Jr. had been killed. Friends and family were in utter shock and the community mourned the loss of such a kind and caring family. A family friend, Marcus, said that Fred used to fix his bike and that he was a nice kid. He also knew Keisha and spoke of how brilliant she was at singing. Initially, Manchester police did not identify a suspect and were unsure of a possible motive for the attack on the family. However, after conducting door-to-door questioning and appealing for witnesses, they soon discovered that Beverly had been in a relationship for the past year with known gang member and criminal, Pierre Williams. The officers didn't believe that the murders were gang-related, but they did know that they needed to speak to Pierre immediately. The officers also knew that he could be very dangerous and potentially armed. They made the unusual decision to ask the public for help. In the past few minutes, police in Manchester have named a man they want to question over the murders of a woman and her two teenage children. The man's name is Pierre Williams. Police say he should not be approached. What happened next shocked police. Just hours after the news reports aired appealing for information on his whereabouts, Pierre called 999 to hand himself in... Under the pretense that he wanted to sort all of this out and clear his name. Police emergency. Yeah, I've been on the news today saying I'm a suspect for the murder inquiry. Should I? Pierre yeah, Williams. That's what the police are coming to see me now so they all out. Soon after that, the police had Pierre in custody, but with no forensic evidence linking him to the crime, they had a problem. Pierre claimed that he had legitimate reasons for having been at the house on the evening of the murders, but insisted he had nothing to do with it and he didn't know anything. He said that a hooded man had come in, murdered the family, and run away. This explanation didn't sit well with the officers and there was no further evidence to support Pierre's claim. Officers knew that they had the right person in front of them, they had an eyewitness account and a suspect in custody, but there was a problem. Pierre was linked to the Gooch Gang, a notorious Manchester-based street gang. It was soon revealed that whilst involved with the Gooch Gang, Pierre's expertise was in crime scene cleanup. Experts quickly discovered that the clean-up operation that had been undertaken at Beverly's house on Thelwall Avenue was forensically sterile. There were no fingerprints or DNA found belonging to Pierre at the crime scene. Pierre had cleaned up crime scenes many times before, and it appeared that he'd become an expert knowing what and how to clean up. Forensic experts couldn't locate any DNA evidence. One of the experts suggested they think about what Pierre would have done immediately after the murder and realised that in order to have left the scene without attracting attention to himself, he would have had to wash the blood off of his hands and body. They searched the bathroom and kitchen, but couldn't find even trace blood due to the extensive clean-up job. Experts continued to trawl the house on the lookout for anything that could connect Pierre to the murders. They needed Pierre to incriminate himself, or at the very least place himself at the scene when the eyewitnesses put him there. Pierre knew that at the time, the police could only hold him for a maximum of 96 hours before they would have to let him go if they had no evidence beyond the eyewitness testimony. During the police interview, Pierre answered no comment to almost every question he was asked. He began the interview answering truthfully when asked facts such as his name and his date of birth. But as soon as he felt the question could lead to evidence against him, he switched his tactic to only answer by saying no comment. The police knew the pressure was on to collate some sort of solid evidence before the 96-hour mark. Detective Superintendent Ian Forster, who led the investigation, knew that without this, the reality would be that they wouldn't be able to charge Pierre and would have no choice but to let him go. The police questioned Pierre for three days when the forensic team called the detective with some news. Pierre had made a mistake. It wasn't DNA and it wasn't a fingerprint, but it was something damning. The forensic team had found a bloody shoe print. All they needed to charge Pierre was a match to his shoe. Unfortunately, the print didn't match the shoes he was wearing at the police station, but officers knew that if they raided his house, they'd likely find a match. The problem was... Pierre hadn't told police where he lived. They knew he grew up in Mossside in Manchester and were aware of his links in previous years with Birmingham but could find no official record of where he currently lived. After a further 10 hours of questioning, Pierre still wouldn't disclose where he lived and time was running out. During this time, Investigators had been doing extensive research into known links, gangs, family, and friends of Pierre, and it paid off. They located his only known current address in Selly Oak in Birmingham. The officers gained entry to his house and what they found was chilling. They realized that the murders may have been more thought out than they originally suspected. After they searched his home, and found books on forensic science and crime scene investigation. They continued searching but couldn't locate the shoes and realised Pierre must have disposed of them before he handed himself in to police. However, what Pierre didn't know was that at this time, experts were looking for a latent footprint, invisible to the naked eye, somewhere in his flat. Experts managed to do a gel lift that looked as though it may match. They rushed the print to Chorley Forensic Lab, where the police officers waited for confirmation that the print in Pierre's flat was an exact match to the bloody print found at the murder scene. The perfect match left no doubt to Pierre's guilt and came in just three hours before his scheduled release from custody. On the night of the murders, Pierre had come to Beverly's house with the intent of having sex with her. But because Keisha was coming home for the night, as well as the fact the relationship between her and Pierre had been ending, she rejected his advances and refused to let him in. Somewhere between 3:45 a.m. and 7:45 a.m., Pierre had come back to the house with the intention of having sex with Beverly whether she wanted to or not. When he arrived at the house this time, he forced his way in and, armed with a steel-headed hammer, forced Beverly into her bedroom and told her that if she screamed or shouted for help, he would kill her. He then proceeded to rape her in her bedroom, before striking her a number of times with the hammer, beating her so severely that by the end of the attack, her skull was completely crushed. Pierre heard the door slowly opening behind him and as he turned around, he saw Fred Jr. peering inside to see what was happening. He made eye contact with Fred Jr. and immediately grabbed him and dragged him into Beverly's bedroom, closing the door behind him quietly. He killed 13-year-old Fred with the same hammer. He covered Fred Jr.'s body with the duvet and left him lying on the floor next to Beverly's bed. Pierre then made his way toward the spare room, where he knew Keisha would be sleeping. He was covered in blood and still holding the bloody hammer. He pushed her door open to see that she was still asleep. He slowly walked into the room, quietly closing the door behind him before getting on top of Keisha in her bed. As she woke up and began to struggle, he told her the same thing he'd told her mother, that she needed to be quiet and not scream or shout for help, or he'd kill her. He then took Keisha's bra and used it to tie her hands behind her back before raping her. Before he left the room, he knelt on Keisha's back and used the hammer to fatally strike her. He hit her so hard that the blow actually severed her ear. Beverly had said to her sister that one day Pierre would kill her. At the time, Beverly's sister thought that although it was a bit of an odd joke to make, it was still just a joke. She hoped that because Beverly and Pierre's relationship had been very on and off since they started dating, Pierre would soon be out of their lives for good. Pierre had a history of domestic and sexual violence. He had previously been charged with rape and had criminal convictions throughout his life. When he was a teenager, Pierre was part of the most notorious gang in Manchester, the Gooch Gang. They were based in the neighbourhoods of South Manchester and recruited most of their members from the west side of Alexandra Park Estate, in Mossside, around Gooch Close, hence the name. The gang were merciless and didn't care who they hurt. In their most active years, they killed a huge number of people, including schoolchildren 15-year-old Jesse James and 14-year-old Benji Stanley and in the late 1990s especially, the gang ruled Manchester with their use of violence, knife and gun crime. It's thought that Pierre was involved with the gang for a number of years, becoming involved with crimes varying from robbery and burglary to knife and gun crime. Pierre was most active with the gang in the early 90s and in March of 1991, he was involved in a shootout between the Gooch gang and another gang, the Doddington. This shootout resulted in over 20 murders and marked the start of the two gangs' rivalry. This rivalry continued over the next 15 years and saw the gangs engage in 146 shootings in 2007. Pierre had a record of 47 convictions beginning in 1991. These included deception, attacks on police officers, drink driving, assault and theft, and, around the time of his first conviction, he was held for three days over the murder of gooch gangster Carl Stapleton. He was ultimately not charged in this crime. In the early 2000s, the gang were involved in a soaring number of gun crimes in Manchester, and it's thought that Pierre was involved in some of the crimes associated with the gang, including 11 murders, 84 serious woundings, and 785 armed robberies in the period of April 2001 to March 2002. During the following years, a specialist unit called Excalibur was set up, with the sole focus of reducing and controlling gang crime with a specific focus on firearms. In 2007, Unit Excalibur were preparing to arrest a number of gang members, including gang leaders and friends of Pierre, Colin Joyce and Lee Amos. The level of violence Pierre witnessed and took part in over the 16 years following his initiation into the gang and leading up to the murders is unknown. But it is thought that in 2005, he was involved in a sexual assault of a girlfriend or sister of a fellow gang member and was forced to leave the Gooch gang. However, it is known that he continued to have contact and share some level of dealings with the gang in the following years, including 2007 when he committed the murders of Beverly, Keisha and Fred. The gang hierarchy sat with Colin Joyce at the top. He earned and kept his place through intimidation, violence and master manipulation. It's thought that Pierre was close to Colin and this is where he learned and tried out his manipulation techniques. The gang were known to cut their jeans pockets and adapt them so that they could secretly fit guns. They also wore body armour under their tracksuits for protection. Over the next few years, gang culture became a staple of Manchester's identity and gun crime became so common in Manchester that the city gained the nickname Gunchester. Their recruitment of gang members had no boundaries and often involved vulnerable people and young teenagers and children of other associated gang members. There's an issue in gang culture, with young people being put at risk, often completely unknowingly. It's likely that even if Beverly knew of Pierre's connections, and we don't know that as a fact, it's highly likely that she wasn't aware to what extent Pierre had been involved. There's a secretive culture that revolves around gangs, which means that either out of fear or loyalty, or both, A person involved in a gang won't necessarily disclose this to their partner or family, and in fact often are very skilled at hiding their connection to the gang or gangs. In 2015, it was found that in Manchester, over 250 children were linked to those deemed at being of risk of serious harm, and 300 adults had safeguarding contact. This may include contact with people like Beverly, Keisha and Fred, who were themselves not involved in gangs, but were living in an area where gangs were active or where there was a significant risk of becoming a victim of a gang through gang-related activities. Of course, the family's concern actually ended up being little to do with the Gooch gang directly and more to do with Pierre's learned and practiced levels of violence including an array of suspected domestic abuse he had subjected Beverly to throughout their relationship. In April 2009, the Excalibur unit had enough evidence to arrest the lead members of the gang and this ultimately led to the dissolution of the gang. In order to lower the risk of witness intimidation from other gang members, the trial was held 35 miles away ...at Liverpool Crown Court. Colin Joyce was sentenced to a minimum of 39 years... ...and a number of other gang members were also sentenced... ...including fellow Gooch gang leader Lee Amos... ...who was sentenced to 35 years. The convictions brought to an end... ...a level of violence that had been commonplace... ...over the previous 20 years in Manchester... ...and Greater Manchester. In the two years following the city saw a 60% decrease in gang crime. Gang violence has not completely disappeared and in the last few years it has actually begun to increase again. Even now in 2020, the Excalibur unit continues to work towards tackling gun and gang crime in the Manchester and Greater Manchester areas. Pierre Williams' trial took place in February 2008. During the trial, the court heard that Pierre had mixed coconut oil with the victim's blood in a biblical reenactment. It was revealed that when he turned himself in, he arrived at the police station with a Bible in his pocket. The Bible had several passages about special oil underlined. The court also heard how Pierre had stolen three mobile phones from the house and sold them after leaving the scene. After just three hours of deliberation, the jury found Pierre guilty and he was ordered to serve three life sentences with a minimum of 38 years. Pierre became violent and shouted that he was innocent. The judge banned him from the dock and he was taken down to the cells at Manchester Crown Court. The judge described Pierre Williams as a very dangerous man and said that only he could know what terror and pain he inflicted upon them before they died. During the trial, one of Pierre's ex-girlfriends testified how he had tied her up and raped her twice during their relationship and officers had to assume that there were many more victims of this kind of abuse. In a press conference after Pierre was charged, Detective Superintendent Ian Forster spoke about the other victims. What I am concerned about at the moment is, I suspect other women may have suffered at his hands. If that is the case, I would ask them to come forward and speak to us. They will be speaking to people who want to hear what they say, and who will listen to them with compassion. If you are struggling with the consequences of what he's done to you, please come forward. We'll do everything we can to help you. We can forward you to some counselling and hope you get through the ordeal. At 10:30 a.m. on the 10th of August 2007, the funeral for Beverly, Keisha, and Fred was held at the Catholic Church on Oxford Road in Manchester. The burial took place at Southern Cemetery and saw hundreds of family members and friends gather to remember the family. Following Keisha's death, her A-level results were sent to the school and her teacher, Mrs. Johnson, gathered some of her classmates and organised a celebration for Keisha's results. She had earned two A's and a B, and had been awarded a scholarship to the University of Manchester. At 10am on results day, Keisha's classmates and teachers came together and wrote notes for her, which they then attached to balloons and let fly away. In memory of Keisha's commitment in and outside of college, Keisha's friends and teachers spoke about what it would have been like if she was there. And I think people are very happy for Keisha. One of her best friends said, I'm, I'm almost more happy about her results than I am about mine. And, and I think there is an element of that today, but there's also a sadness that she's not here. It, it's a very poignant day. A classmate of Fred's called Bobby Curtis said, quote, Rest in peace, Fred and his family are never forgotten. He was in my class at St Kent's, one of the nicest, funniest people I met. Unquote. A close family member said, quote, We are a very big and close family and can't begin to describe our loss because we loved them all so much. They were so similar in so many ways and all of them lit up our lives. Fred, or baby Fred as we used to call him, was a little gem. He loved being a kid just a proper, typical little boy who loved Manchester United. He didn't have a care in the world. Unquote. Keisha's dad, Fred Senior, said, quote, Keisha was my first child. She set the course of my life. She was a typical teenager. She had so much depth to her. She could be loud, fun, loving, sporty, but she was also caring a good listener, and in many ways, my soulmate. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark, with additional music by Benjamin James. Special thanks to 94 Gunships.